Your Partner in Success Radio is a free business podcast with host Denise Griffiths. It's all about great stories, conversation, and context to help you move your business and life forward with actionable tips and advice from her guest experts. To listen and subscribe, just find us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you consume your podcasts. Good morning and welcome to your Partner in Success Radio. This is where top performers share their secrets to help you achieve your personal and professional goals. I am your host, Denise Griffiths, and together with my amazing guests, we bring you inspiring and actionable insights that are aimed to help you take your life and your business to the next level. Ranked in the top 2% globally, this podcast really is a must-listen. And whether you're tuning in for entrepreneurial tips, career advice, or personal development strategies, or honestly, anything in between, because I get some really fascinating guests to come on the show, and we may talk about just about anything. So get ready to turn inspiration into action, challenges into triumphs, and dreams into reality. And today we're talking about a very important topic and one that's, it's impossible to ignore. In fact, I was talking about it with somebody the other day and the topic is end of life care. It's never easy to broach that topic, but it's important, really important to have these conversations before a crisis arises. And ideally these, these discussions should happen when the person is still able to express their wishes and their preferences, and you can talk, you can talk it out. It might feel heavy and frightening, and it is. Been there, done it. But addressing it sooner rather than later ensures that everyone is on the same page and the individual's wishes are respected. So today I am welcoming Dr. Bob Uslander, and he's an MD with 35 years of medical experience, and he, along with his wife, Elizabeth Uslander, A seasoned spiritual counselor and medical social worker are the founders of Empowered Endings, and it's a platform that aims to eliminate fear around end-of-life experiences and provides comprehensive support for individuals and their loved ones. And they believe that by planning, listening, so important, and honoring the wishes of people in their final chapter, they can help rewrite the tragic narrative associated with death. Welcome to your partner in success. Let me try that again. Welcome to your partner in success radio, Bob. It's good to have you here. And I'm so sorry that Elizabeth wasn't able to join us today. Thanks, Denise. It's nice to be here. Um, I appreciate the opportunity to share the amazing work that, that we've been doing. And I'm sorry that Elizabeth isn't here. Hopefully there'll be an opportunity for her to come back and and uh, connect with you at some point in the future. She's just under the weather today and wasn't able to make it i understand and definitely i'd like to have her come back maybe in the new year when she's feeling better right now we're booking through march and april so right um yeah maybe in the spring she'll feel better well she's better i'm hoping she i'm hoping she'll be better by then so (laughs) one of my sisters is always sick at christmas time it's amazing always Mm. never feels good at christmas we think it's psychosomatic but you Uh, know yeah i think if it happens that often i think you might want to there might be something to that we just leave her be. <laughs> She's going to do what she wants to do, and we don't even bother to get offended by it. She doesn't like Christmas. We understand that. So tell me a bit about you and Empowered Endings, because you and I had, well, you and I and Elizabeth had a pretty interesting pre-call some months ago. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I hate pushing website websites. I hate pushing podcasts out so far 
because often, and I have to be honest about it, I've forgotten what we talked about. I was interested enough to say, yes, come mm-hmm. on the show. But with you two, I remember every word of it. So mm-hmm. I don't have to ask you to remind me about anything, but tell us about Empower. In, I can't talk today. I'm sorry. It's late in the <laughs> afternoon. And I think I'm going to be psychosomatic today. <laughs> I may need a nap. But what empowers and what defines empowered industry? endings i'm sorry i can't talk but i'm going to keep going on anyway (laughs) (laughs) so so empowered endings is it's a um it's our vision it's the vision that we have together developed to provide um, a whole um kind of a multi-layer approach to supporting people in their end-of-life journeys and supporting the loved ones and the families and being able to help navigate uh, end of life journeys in a way that is uh, more, oh, more holistic, more uh, supported and um, and reasonable. Um, and it's also an effort to, to teach healthcare providers and people who are really committed to providing support for, for patients and families, the, the tools, and resources and inspiration to do it better. You know, end of life care for a long time, and and I'll share a bit more about how I got to this place and how Elizabeth got to this place. But the bottom line is end of life care is, is often fractured and it's often siloed and it's often inadequate. And people don't know enough about what's truly happening. and they don't find out about it until they're in the like in the midst of it, in in the muck. And often by that time, it's it's too late to really start over and 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 take a different approach that would be much more gentle and peaceful and um, and dignified. So we've seen enough horror stories. Both I, as an emergency physician for twenty five years, I, I witnessed many many unfortunate, tragic endings. And, and then as a palliative care and hospice with a physician for a number of years, I saw how, how many holes and gaps there were in our current healthcare system that caused people to struggle needlessly. And so we have built a model that, that um, fills those gaps and that allows people to die just much more gently and peacefully, um, well, consistently. When you say that there's a lot of needless things happening. Can you give us a couple of examples? Well, uh, well, there's so many, but I'll start with just a couple. Many people are being treated far beyond what make, what's reasonable. So patients with cancer, as an example, are often being given uh, treatments, chemotherapy, radiation therapy, clinical trials, experimental treatments that just don't make sense. And if they really understood what the impact was likely to be and the and the the true potential benefit, they would never agree to it. They would make they, they would make different choices and they would live their life very differently through the final the final weeks or months of life. Um, a lot of people end up in the hospital when that's absolutely not where they want or should be. They end up in nursing homes when that's not where they should be. Um, because the healthcare system doesn't typically think outside the box. They don't typically look at all the, all the options. Um, 
and they kind of do things by reflex and based on what's in the best interest of the organization or in the individuals who are sort of making decisions. There's a lot of greed um, and there's a lot of uh, fear of liability that influences the way people are cared for. And I wondered, you know, I, ca I catch myself and I mean, no disrespect to the medical community. I think you guys are heroes in so many ways, but I also think that there's an awful lot of experimenting that goes on that is led, that leads directly to, we don't want to get sued. I, I, I agree. Having been in, in, you know, very involved, uh, in, integral in that system for many years, I'm, uh, it, it, it influences a lot. Um, the fear influences a lot. So does just the, the, um, the lack of creativity and the lack of willingness to sort of buck the system or um, the, the, there's the, the doctors don't have enough time to really get fully engaged in, in what's happening with the patients. At end of life, physicians are, are largely removed from the, from the equation. Um, a, a lot of what happens is people are overwhelmed and they're just trying to get through their days. And so patients and families get moved along in this conveyor belt and the, the path of least resistance is more treatment, more tests, more hospitalizations, more transitions to nursing homes or hospice. And, and no one's like really paying attention to what the patient wants and needs or giving the patient information about their options and and you know what we've identified in our in our combined careers and in our individual careers and now in our combined experience is the, sort of the, the major gaps that people are facing um when they're approaching this end of life period and, I'm, and and we'll go through some of those so that people have some takeaways for sure definitely i remember talking with you about my brother and i just posted on Facebook about him because he had a double lung transplant and the anniversary was a couple of days ago and he had eight extra years of life. But what happened that last year, we were all just saying, what the hell are you doing to him? Mm -hmm. Leave him be. He's going to make his own decisions. Quit trying to do this, that, and the other. You already know he's dying. He knows he's dying. Quit poking him. It got ugly. It really did. Are you referring to the to the healthcare providers who you were wanting, who you would have liked to have had those conversations well, with, or family the, members, or no, the family members were all on board. He he actually, and he told us all. He said, "Listen, when it gets to where I'm in so much pain, I can't take it anymore. I will stop dialysis." He had done his his homework, and he knew that mm -hmm. he would live very long, and it would be largely painless. He thought, and. I got a phone call. He said, I didn't go to dialysis today. And we knew. And he was gone three days later. Mm. The family was there with him. Yeah, as much I couldn't be because I was too far away. But his, from what I could see, and this is just my observation, I'm not lobbying any accusations, but from my bubble away from it, I thought he was over medicated. I thought he was in the hospital way too often that his care team wasn't talking with his surgery team. And there was just too many people saying, oh, you got to do this. And he was over medicated. I promise you he mm -hmm. would. And there was just so many things that as a complete outsider, my eyebrows were going up to my eye, eye hair line saying, what the hell are they thinking? Mm -hmm. 
that's, you know, and it was three years ago and I'm still wondering what they were thinking. Yeah. Well, part of a, a huge part of why we do what we do is so that three years later, family members, loved ones don't still suffer the, the consequences. They don't still suffer from angst and guilt and regret and remorse because they, they allowed things to happen in, in a way that, you know, traumatized their loved one or made their last days a, a, a struggle when they didn't need to be. Um, you know, one of the examples, one of the things that we support patients through is medical aid and dying which is not legal in all states, but it is in California and, and 10 other states and jurisdictions. So that a person who has a terminal condition and is, is going to die within six months or presumably going to die within six months and is competent to make decisions can get access to a prescription of medicine that if they choose to take it, they'll fall asleep within a few minutes and die very gently and peacefully within minutes to hours. So, I mean, in your brother's case, he, he kind of almost did a similar thing by stopping dialysis. That's, that's clearly going to end a per, your, your life. And sometimes it could be a few days, sometimes it could be longer, but medical aid and dying gives people peace of mind. It gives them empowerment and allows them to choose when it's time for them to go, when the quality of their life has um, eroded to a point that's no longer acceptable to them. And they can just, at the time of their choosing, with the people of their choosing, go peacefully and make their transition. And that's what now, And you're talking about, because I remember we talked about this during the pre-interview. I had my sister's best friend, her husband, and there, this was a time where it was legal. And then for about 10 or 14 days, it wasn't. It was over. Mm -hmm. Remember that. But he did that. And I've never heard anything but powerful mentions about how that happened yeah you know, everybody well, said, this is his choice we're going to be here he's going to be upstairs alone by himself it's his choice mm -hmm. and i mean he did it his way and his family absolutely agreed with it his friend my brother was there you know he knew that that was an option for him so he did have choices thank goodness yeah yeah and he he was he made his choice that was the choice that was right for him exactly the point, of, the, the point that i was kind of you know making a bit long-windedly <laughs> about the medical aid of dying is when people find out that this is an option for them but they were not told about it nobody especially people who have been suffering who have been in and out of the hospital or you know or suffering from the the effects of their progressive cancer or end-stage heart failure or the, the 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 really challenging impact of the treatments that they've been doing and they're clearly struggling and they have ex even expressed to people that they wish their suffering could be over and no one has told them about this option nobody has informed them either because they didn't think it was appropriate because of their own beliefs or they didn't know about it when people find out that this was an option that they didn't know about and and because of that lack of of knowledge their loved one had to struggle well beyond what they would have um, agreed to or been willing to had they known there was another option they're angry they're they're you know they they feel like somehow they were let down and they were misled or misguided um, and that stays with you. And our goal is to try to keep, like avoid the trauma, avoid the PTSD, avoid the 
the the years or decades of of anxiety and fear that that are the result of a really challenging end of life journey um, that you have to witness or participate in. So there's, there's a lot that can be done that's not being done. We, we want to see a whole new field of medicine developing around end of life care that, that really involve a, the, a team approach, not just hospice because hospice, although it's wonderful, a lot of value and there's a lot of amazing people who are in hospice care, it's often just not enough. And you're right. I mean, I saw that with my mom. It's I've seen a lot of death in the last few years. So mm. this really resonates with me. But and I, I'm not trying to equate human life to animal life, but when we know, most of us, when we know we've got a pet that is in agony or dying, we don't hesitate. We're off to the vet. Yeah. The kindest, most compassionate thing to do. We don't say, well, you know, you go sit over there in the corner. I'll clean up after you, but you're going to have to die on your own. We yeah. just don't do that. One of the most common uh, questions that's, that's kind of posed, it's a hypothetical question that people don't necessarily expect an answer to, but they say, why do we treat our pets better than we treat our people? Exactly. That was my point. And, yeah. And I guess my, re my response to that is, um, we don't. We treat our people with the same or more love, dignity, compassion than anybody would treat their pets. And we try to, we, and that's what we're trying to spread. We're trying to, we're trying to um, strike from, from anybody's mind the question of why we don't treat our people as well as we treat our pets. So that's our goal. And that, that leads me to my next question, which, and I think you might have answered it. What inspired the creation and the building of Empowered Indies? I want to say Empowered Industries. I don't know why, but <laughs> Empowered Indies. I've got it. Empowered Indies. Was there any particular moment where you guys looked at each other and said, we've got to do something about this? Well, I, I don't know that it was a particular moment, but it was it certainly it was a series of, of um of experiences that over a period. Oh, so we, so the practice started back in 2016. I was an emergency physician for 25 years. I had, um, of course, in the emergency room, no one dies well, everybody dies traumatically. And, and it's, it's, it's often kind of mayhem. Um, and it's all almost always considered an abject failure. Somehow the system failed, we failed. Um, and, and so that, that, that built up over time. I had a beautiful experience about 10 years into my practice where a close friend of mine died at the age of 32 um, after a long battle with melanoma. And I got to be a part of that, um, of that journey with him and his family and, and a very close group of friends. And, and I, for the first time, was able to witness a, a beautiful end of life and a death that was very peaceful. It was, it was truly the first time that, that I had seen that happen and the first time that I saw hospice come in and work their magic. And that really stuck with me. And about 15 years later, I, I'd done, I, I dabbled in, end up in um, I had started a house call practice and, and I had um, done some hospice care with some of those patients that were homebound. And, and then a, as I 
got to a point where emergency medicine was just becoming too stressful, too challenging for me to feel like I could continue long-term, I found myself um, called to, to providing end-of-life care. Almost, I, I had basically a, an epiphany, a download from the universe that, that made it very clear that this was the path that I needed to follow. And then I met some people in that world in San Diego who guided me towards um, an, an opportunity to work in that space in the traditional healthcare model. So I got to work in palliative care and hospice care, and it was beautiful because it was so much more kind of aligned with, with what I wanted to be doing. And I was going into people's homes and developing relationships and providing support, but, but the system was still filled with holes and gaps and limitations. So I started my own practice in 2016 that was really designed to, to enhance the support and care that patients and families got through that end of life journey and to supplement what was already kind of being offered by the healthcare system. Elizabeth had, had come on her own journey kind of parallel and was in, in involved. She was working as a social worker and bereavement coordinator at a hospice company in San Diego and was also a very strong advocate and proponent and educator around end of life options um, because the end of life option act in California was just about ready to um, come into um, existence that law had passed and, and they were preparing for, for it to become effective a few months later. And we met and she joined the practice as a social worker and then started running the practice. And then over a period of a few years, we just combined me doing the medical part, her doing the counseling and like showing up as like an end of life doula to really support patients and families in this deep, deep way. And we, we, we noticed that our patients died more peacefully than the general population. And our families and loved ones afterwards were so incredibly grateful and, and it was, it seemed like the experience that they had was, was so different than the, the traditional default experience that people were having. And we, we just kind of looked back and said, well, what are we doing? What is it that we do that allows for these experiences to be so much different and for people to be writing these long letters and cards of gratitude for the experience that they, that, that they had and were able to offer to their loved one. And we, so that was how we sort of identified the gaps that, that exist in the traditional models and what we do that was different that, that kind of really helped to fill those gaps and support people beautifully. Um, and so it wasn't a moment, it was lots of moments. And it was lots of times when we, when we, we it, was, it was all those cards, really the cards, the letters, the emails from the families that let us know we were doing something right. Well, if from what I'm hearing is that you heard people, you listened, you listened in between the lines, you heard what their, their fears were, what their worries were. I'm guessing that most people, it's always been my experience anyway, is that most people are not worried so much about them. They're worried about their family. They're worried about their pets. They're worried about everybody pretty much, but them. Has yeah. that been your experience? Uh, yes, often. Often they they they're they're consumed with the con with being a burden, right? Mm -hmm. They're they they um 
the worry how people are gonna be managed once they're gone. Um, so, so listening is a huge part of it, right? And part of it is also just having the experience. I, I, I became a much better palliative care and end of life physician after I supported both of my parents through their end of life journeys. I, have, I, I, I became more understanding of the experience that other people were having, of the, the family members, the loved ones, the children, the spouses, as I, um, after I had navigated those, those journeys with my parents who died about a year apart, um, as I was just becoming, as I was just sort of entering this space. And so that was really valuable. I know Elizabeth has had her own personal experiences of loss and, and grief that also informed and, and infused her with the, with the knowledge and the, the wisdom of, of how to show for people. Plus she's also just one of an, an amazing empath and, and uh, just a deeply spiritual uh, soul. But, the, but you know what? The biggest thing that we identified is it's just being willing to show up. It's not rocket science to take better care of people. It's just showing up for them in their times of need. And it doesn't mean that you have to drop everything that you're doing and, you know, and devote two hours to addressing this situation. Often, it's just a text. Like, mom is afraid and she's, you know, she, she's caught. There's so many different things that can come up. And all it takes is just being there and letting them know that you're, that you're, that you're responsive and present with them and, and there for them. And it doesn't end at five o'clock in the afternoon when, you know, when offices close, you, you need to be able to be present for people when they express their needs. So this isn't the model that we have and the practice that we have isn't going to be right for everybody. It's not going to be right for somebody who just wants a nine to five job and, and wants to then put it all aside and go off and, you know, and, and not be available and present the rest of the time. So it's, it's a, it's a level of commitment that, that we're finding many people have, but not everybody. I understand. And you mentioned that, you know, on top of it, not being for everybody, but just being there, being present, listening, and, you know, these floods of cards and thank yous, and I'm guessing cakes and cookies came your way. You didn't <laughs> see that, did you, when you were in the operating room or not the operating room, but the, the emergency room? I'm guessing that how people came to you and reacted to you probably changed fairly dramatically when you changed how you were operating with them. It did because we developed relationships that that often the relationships were very intense and, and relatively short. They might only be a matter of days or weeks at times. I also have patients that I've been seeing for five or six years, but many of these people, um, we, we come to work with them in the very final days or, or weeks of their life and help to guide and navigate them to the, to the, the finish line. Um, but those, but those connections become very deep and there's no, there, like, there's no, there's nothing that, that sort of interferes with that connection. We come in and we're, it's so important to us to let people know that they're seen and heard and held. 
and they feel that and they respond to it. And, and so that's what allows these, these deep connections to, to happen quickly. In the emergency room, I, I actually found it pretty, um, it, was, it was a fun challenge to try to make those connections, but instead of doing it over days or weeks, we had to do it over minutes or, or hours. Um, and one of the things I enjoyed about being an ER doctor was being able to help people who came in there and were just terrified and, and really anxious about you know, what was happening and frustrated because they'd been waiting too long. And then to be able to, to bring down the level of stress and just, just you often use humor, just meet them where they were. So, so even though we didn't get a lot of cakes and cookies and cards there was there was a, a sense of satisfaction about being able to take a situation that was incredibly stressful and scary and and then seeing you know an hour or two later the the person walking out of the emergency room smiling and you know saying huh that wasn't such a bad experience <laughs> I like going to the dentist well that didn't hurt <laughs> you know that kind of thing I I understand what you're saying so. I kind of want to get a little bit technical here because I've got, and so not technical, but more of a, you know, lay out how you recommend individuals start planning for their end of life life experience, because we don't know. We just don't know. You can go to the grocery store and not come home that day. Right. Where do you start? Well, so it starts with conversations. I think it starts with, with, with a being, um, recognizing that it's important, that it's a valuable exercise to open up these conversations and try to find a way to become a bit more friendly with the concept of mortality. Um, we can't ignore it. I've never understood that. So, you know, and people will get flippant. Well, you're born, you die, you get taxed. There's more to that than you know, being born, dying and being taxed. So, you know, you need to pay attention is my point. Yeah. I mean, some people, some people just don't, don't ever want to, or think it's important to um, explore these issues or plan. And, and at the end of the day, for those people, um, if it's not stressing them and ultimately they, they, they recognize some of them recognize that things will change, things will happen. And then they'll need to deal with it, but they're not going to spend a lot of time in advance. And then they, you know, they kind of make their own bed because sometimes those same people have this assumption, this belief that when their, their health becomes more complex, more, more challenging and, the, and their needs become more um, substantial, that the healthcare system will show up for them. It will be there to meet their needs perfectly. It won't in most no. cases, no. people don't, you know, they, and then they're going to, and then, and then they'll have to figure it out. Sometimes they'll, they'll get lucky and they'll be guided properly with, with not with relatively little struggle and, um, and uh, disruption. Often though, it will, it will turn out to be traumatic, overwhelming, frustrating, and there will be like we talked about unnecessary suffering. So, for people who are interested in doing a little bit of planning and exploring, there's a lot of tools out there that are available. There's, there's the five wishes, the conversation project. Um, we, you know, people go to our website, we have some resources and we also 
one of the things that we do is we have planning sessions with people where we sit we sit down either in person or virtually on Zoom, and we go through what's happening with them currently, where what their health status is, whether, and some people start early when they're in their 40s or 50s and they don't have a lot going on. Other I was people, kind of about that. It's, it's never too early, is it? It's never too early. It's never too early to start the conversations and put things in place to, to, to make sure your loved ones or your healthcare agents know what you want and what you don't want and to have it documented in a, in a way that allows them to advocate for you the way you would want them to. Because even, you know, you, you might be healthy and in your 40s, that's not going to necessarily um, protect you from a horrible car accident or a fall or a infection that renders you incapacitated. So it's never too early to make some of these uh, of your wishes known and to have those conversations. But what we do is we help to, we help people who have want to do it at even at a higher level of detail. They want to talk about what the different, what are the different things that could potentially create challenges for them or their loved ones. Um, what happens if I have a stroke and I can't speak for myself? What happens if I'm uh, if something happens and I'm paralyzed, what happens if I, uh, you know, have cancer and and I'm temporarily uh, incapacitated because of some complication? So we, we talk about all the things that could happen. And because of my experience as a ER doctor for 25 years and um, the, the, the experiences that I've had have informed me uh, in, a, in a more, in a deeper comprehensive way that allows me to to communicate with people about some of the the nuances the subtler things that that aren't addressed in an advanced healthcare directive in the standard forms that people might get from their lawyers or download from you know from the internet so some people really just want to have a lot of those questions addressed and create a, a, a document that indicates how they would want the, the final stage of their life to unfold if they could control it. Um, and those documents only come into play if they can't speak for themselves. As long as a person is competent and can speak for themselves and, and weigh in on what they want or don't want, the healthcare directives and the powers of attorney are only, they're, they're there just for out of interest. Once they can't communicate adequately or they can't speak for themselves, that's when the, the power of attorney documents the healthcare agents take over speaking for that person as and, and basically guiding everything that happens that from that point forward. So making sure that those people understand what you would want or don't want is is truly critical. And sometimes we will facilitate those conversations as well. And, and I find that to be really satisfying when we can have conversations with like an older couple and their children so that everybody has is able to ask their questions and and come to a, uh, a, an alignment and an understanding um, that really saves a lot of anguish when things do start to happen. And I would think, and we have all, you, me, the audience, anybody listening, we've all seen this the infighting that can happen after somebody passes because things were not 
spelled out or I want the house or I'm taking, you know, everything that's in the safe or I'm getting the dog, you know, it's just, it can get crazy. And I'm assuming a lot of that has to do with grief. You know, if you're working with grief brain, you probably shouldn't be making a lot of decisions. (laughs) So those should be made beforehand, shouldn't they? Yeah, for sure. I mean, as much as possible. So part of, part of what we help people uh, with is, is making sure that, that they get to the right additional resources right? so that they have all their other, other documents, but not just the medical part of it, but making sure that they've communicated about their, their wills and make sure that, that everybody has a, a, a sense of understanding um, and completion around how things will unfold. And, and we've, we've also, um, one of the things that we've uh, been developing is this model where end-of-life doulas partner with doctors and the whole team. And end-of-life doulas are an, are an incredibly invaluable resource. Uh, and I'm not, many people aren't, aren't familiar with what end-of-life doulas do, or even many people haven't even heard of end-of-life doulas. I have to tell you, until I met you and Elizabeth, I had never heard that particular reference. So let's go deep into that a little bit. Yeah, for sure. So, so most people are are aware of the the movement that has happened in the seventies, eighties, where where the birthing um, movement started to allow people to have prenatal care and deliveries in birthing centers, not necessarily always in the hospital, kind of demedicalizing that experience a bit, giving people more choices, more options. And midwives and doulas receive specialized training in, in being able to support pregnant women and families that were um, looking forward to bringing in a child and then also being with them through the delivery and the postnatal period. And that was really a, 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 a shift, a paradigm shift. Um, there are end of life doulas who they are, these are people who want to, uh, they want to companion patients and families who are uh, approaching the end of life. They're like, you know, guides or Sherpas for people who are ascending the final summit. Um, and they come from all walks of life. Some of them are, have been hospice nurses or social workers or chaplains. Some of them have just had their own personal experiences around loss that they have, um, that was really inspiring. And so there are training programs, a handful of training programs out there that are, that are training people in, in becoming doulas. Um, some of it is very spiritually based and helping to um, find, you know, to deal with the impending and uh, upcoming grief. Some of it is around creating rituals that would make the, the dying and easier and the, the time of death more beautiful and supported. Some of them are more practical in their approach and make sure that all the checklists of the things that you have to address prior to death and after death are being negotiated appropriately. Um, Funeral homes and cremations and closing accounts and all that. So so there's a wide range of the support and services that doulas offer, but it's, it's designed to help to reduce the overwhelm to allow people to feel like they have uh, a, a layer of support that is outside of the standard insurance model, which has its significant 
constraints and limitations. And so part of our mission at Empowered Endings is to recognize the value of end-of-life doulas, train them in delivering outstanding end-of-life care in, in the way that we've um, the way that we've learned to do it best and help them understand how to partner with the existing healthcare system to supplement what's already available and make sure that people have more awareness of and more respect for it and feel comfortable bringing doulas into their experience because it's really powerful. It does make an awful lot of sense. I can't believe I had never heard of it at all. But while I'm listening to you, I'm scribbling notes and the the note, there's one word that keeps popping up and it's journey. It is a journey. It's a personal journey. It's an inevitable journey. But if you kind of narrow it down a bit and you're thinking, say, listen, if I'm going to go on a cruise, I've got a lot of planning. Who's going to take care of the house? Who's going to take care of the pets? How long am I going to be there? How much can I afford? What's going to happen when I get back? Who's going to take care of my office? Question after question after question. Mm -hmm. But you don't ignore any of it because you're going on a journey. Yeah. And, and most people, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a very a beautiful way to look at it. And most people have the, have the skills that they need. They have the tools that they need to plan for a cruise. Most people don't have the this, this skill set or the tools that they need to plan for the end of life journey. So is they rely on the emotions, the fear. What do you, what do you think it is? No, I think it's unknown. They just don't know. They don't know what they uh, don't know. They haven't yeah. done it before. And, yeah. and I mean, after you've gone through it, you now know some of the things that you have to be prepared for and planning for. But the first time around, um, and hospice comes in and provides a fair amount of support. Some, some experiences with hospice are, are wonderful and people sing their praises. Some of them are horrific. Uh, there's not a lot of oversight of hospice care. There's a lot of hospices that are popping up just in San Diego alone. Somebody recently did a search for how many hospices claim to be serving people in San Diego. There's 182. Ow. So how do you choose? How do you like find, and, and a lot of them are, 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 they don't have a lot of support. They don't have, uh, you know, things aren't really, aren't really um, fully vetted. And, and, and so people can find themselves in the most critical time of life and where everything is so emotional and so happening so quickly, undersupported and, and kind of left in the dark. So some hospices, can help and and some people can have good experiences but it it's it, it too often is just sort of left to chance and this isn't something that that we like to take a chance with right there's no do-overs you can only do you only get to do this once so i kind of i, I look at, at approaching death like climbing a mountain peak right it's a final ascent and sometimes when you're you know, making this ascent, the weather's good and the path is clear and, and it's just like one, put one foot in front of the other and you get to the top and, and it hasn't, it's not terribly challenging. Other times the path is not clear at all. The weather is, is not good. It's, it, it's dangerous and it's blustery and there's obstacles and it's, it's frankly very dangerous and you can get, you can get scathed along the way. That's why people hire guides to help them understand 
where the where the, the best paths are, where the obstacles are, how to navigate. Some people just need a little bit of, you know, gentle guidance along the way. Some people need like some serious carrying of, of, of all of their stuff, their baggage, their experiences, and, and really to be pushed and sometimes carried up that mountain. So part of what we do is we just meet people where they are. We find out what they're dealing with, what their resources are, what, you know, what their goals are and their wishes and, and just kind of help make sure they have what they need, um, meeting them where they are and providing the support and resources that would, that would allow them to achieve those goals. And it's so important, as you said, that family, friends, loved ones are alongside. Yeah. You don't want to have a lot of people going, oh, well, that, I just don't think you ought to do that. When my brother called and said, I'm not going to, you know, he, he, what he said exactly was, I didn't go to dialysis today. And I just said, okay, there was no argument. We'd had the conversations. I knew he was done. Yeah. Well, those conversations, I mean, most people who are, who make decisions like that, they're not impulsive. They don't just wake oh. up one morning and say, oh, I'm going to stop dialysis today. And everyone's just going to have to deal with it. These are, these are, for many people, these are, are um, many conversations have happened. They've been thinking about it for you know for months or years. A lot of the people who who we support through the medical aid and dying process um, let us know that that they've known since you know since they were in their twenties that one day things are going to change for them. They're going to that life is no longer going to feel like it's worth pushing and fighting and this, they're going to be struggling. And, and when that happens, they don't want to, they don't want to linger. They don't want to um, experience the, the final horrors of a of terminal cancer or of ALS or so they, they've long thought about what, how they would want to go out. Um, and a lot of times they've been having conversations with their families and their families are, are, sort of already prepared not always we often we you know we always have people whose loved ones are kind of shocked that they're that they're making the choices that they're making we we end up doing a fair amount of counseling and and support of the loved ones to help them come to a place of understanding come to a place of alignment so that everybody can kind of approach that that final ascent united and and ultimately, when fa especially when families, when family members have had a challenge with accepting somebody's decisions, when they finally come around to understanding at a deeper level and being supportive, it really feels like a gift. It feels like they have experienced a gift and now they're giving a gift of allowing their loved one to make these decisions free of guilt, free of, of a sense of... of that's death. That was our experience with yeah several families, several couple of family members. But one thing, and I wrote this down while you were talking too, is that and you'll see this all the time. My mom passed. My dad passed. There was no will. There was we didn't know what was going to happen, and the family just went nuts. They mm -hmm. had to go in and clean out things that they never wanted to see. They had to go 
take care of the, the pets, the animals. I didn't know my mom was a hoarder. I've heard that mm -hmm. one. Yeah, mm -hmm. How did you not know that? <laughs> but, you know, think if you have not taken care of yourself and your family, you're leaving a big old mess behind you. You're gone, but that mess is right there. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes that sometimes that's the that's the the way that we need to approach it with, with folks who don't want to do the planning. They don't they don't they want to bo be bothered. There's more important things to do. That, uh, but to let them know how that 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 is truly a gift for their loved ones who are gonna need to clean up the messes if they don't put a bit of time and, and energy into into making these plans. Um and, and that's also, you know, sometimes we have patients who need more support, they need caregiving, or they need nurses or, or hospice, and they just don't want to be bothered. They don't want more people coming in into their world. And one of the things that we have to help them understand is it, it's not just about you, right? I, I get that you're the one who's, you know, whose life is coming to an end, and you're the one who's dealing with these these health challenges, but it, you're not alone. Your loved ones are right here with you, and and they're they're exhausted. They're overwhelmed. And I, the statistics show that the caregivers of people who die um, are they often experience pretty dramatic declines in their health, and sometimes even die before the the person they're caring for. So sometimes it's it's you really have to um, you, you need to be strategic and help people understand that that sometimes you have to be willing to accept care or do things that it might not feel perfectly comfortable for you but it's it's to benefit your loved ones and to give them the care and the, and the support that they need down that journey exactly so bob how do you foresee the end of life experience evolving in the next few years What's been happening since we last spoke? Well, I so a few things. I think that more and more, so more and more um, states in this country are going to are going to um, pass laws that allow uh, the residents of those states to do medical aid in dying. So to be able to have a more gentle and peaceful, uh, dignified end, according uh, on their own terms. Um, I think that more and more people are going to learn about voluntarily stopping eating and drinking as a, as a dignified, viable, empowered way for life to end, either in states that don't allow medical aid in dying or for people who don't necessarily um, have a six-month life expectancy but are suffering with, with an uh, interminable and hopeless condition. People can choose to stop eating and drinking and die typically within a week to 10 days. And when it's done with understanding, knowledge, planning, and appropriate support, that can actually be a very beautiful experience. And very few people understand that. Even in healthcare, most doctors have no idea that that visa voluntarily stopping eating and drinking can be gentle and and peaceful. So we're trying to help educate people about this as an option. Um, in the appropriate settings, and um, you know, we're we're not promoting any particular course of action. We just want people to know that there are options, so that they feel they don't feel trapped all the time. The baby, especially the baby boomers, our generation, 
is is not going to uh, tolerate what our parents and grandparents tolerated in terms of the the care and support that's that's um, available or not available. They're going to want to do things differently, and it's already kind of showing up in our experience. And I'm hopeful. I don't think I understand what grandparents saw as opposed to baby boomers. What are you talking about there? Well, so the, our, our grandparents and our parents just let the system tell them what to do. They, were, uh, they, okay. they had this sort of reverence for doctors and they trusted and they, they didn't question. They, for the most part, when a doctor said, do this, they did it. When they said, don't do this, they didn't do it. Our generation, my generation is not going to, yeah, be that way. They're, they're more um, demanding. They're a little bit more cynical about the healthcare and, and, and wanting things their way. And so I, I just see that as something that's going to drive some of the, the forces in healthcare. That makes um, sense. Okay. I wasn't sure where you were going with that. <laughs> yeah. Like, but I do remember when my grandmother passed, she, I think she deliberately, and I don't know this, but you just reminded me, I think that she deliberately stopped eating and drinking. She got hauled to the hospital in an ambulance and they hooked her up to, you know, all kinds of things. And they were going to make her do what they wanted. Make her live. Force yeah, her to she, live. She was unhappy. Let me tell you. Yeah, I bet. I bet. And and, and this, if we have anything to, to say about it or or any influence, then we will uh, in in the you know next five to ten years see end of life care becoming a true medical specialty and have specialist physicians and provide and nurse practitioners and uh, you know, and healthcare providers who are um, stepping up to make sure that the the end of life is not just relegated to an insurance product like med like hospice that does not truly meet people's needs fully because largely because doctors are almost non-existent in the in the actual hands-on care for hospice patients and and that's that's not going to be acceptable for people as, as we go forward so helping to bring this model of doulas and doctors partnering and working with the the traditional uh, healthcare system um, is going to be an important part of, of our future. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, because I don't have any real experience with this. Fortunately, I'm healthy and mean, so I'm going to be around. For <laughs> <a while. laughs> but but <laughs> I have watched, you know, family members and friends, and it, this is just an observation. I don't know that this is true at all, but you said something that kind of triggered the thought again, is that basically from Again, my observations, once the doctor kind of signs off, the nurses take over, the hospice take, but they never see the doctor again. Is that about right. right or am I wrong? That's a, no, you're, you're right. You're absolutely okay. right. There yeah. are a few hospices around, very few, that, that do prioritize having the doctors um, see the patients and interact with the families. The vast majority of hospice care, and at this point, I, I would say 90 to 95% in my experience, once the patient signs on hospice, they will never see a doctor again. But and isn't there a psychological component to that? So basically, once you're signed off, the doctor's gone. You may not recognize it as a patient or not, but they've already just told you, "Well, good luck, goodbye." Yeah, like you don't, you you don't, 
you, you don't rate enough for us to, yeah. to spend our time and on on you. And I and again, I don't want to. I don't. I'm not knocking hospice. Me I'm either. not knocking Me either. It was just and, an the nurses are amazing, and sometimes the nurses are provide better care than a doctor would. It, so not every doctor is going to be valuable in this setting. It's like what when you have a doctor who is caring and is knowledgeable and is willing to to be there and to and to to listen and to empathize. There, it it has such an an, an important um, impact, and I see it, and I, I see the people, uh, patients, and especially families. The, the patients get a; they certainly derive benefit from it. But even more, the loved ones, when a doctor is is willing to be honest and to be and to show up, there's a there's a sense of of um, relief almost that it's that they're hearing from the authority, and they're getting this attention and and care and it's not they're not they're not just being sort of relegated to the lower and that's what i meant about the psychology of it it may not be spoken but i would certainly feel like well that's it you know you're no longer interested in me as a person i thought you know you knew me pretty well i thought i knew you pretty well there's there's an ugly psychology going on there i think well, the, one of the things that happens is doctors who refer patients to hospice, you know, an, an oncologist who's, who uh, doesn't feel that there's any more benefit to the treatment and it's, it, it, there's nothing else that they can offer from their standpoint, or a cardiologist who recognizes that the person's heart disease is at a point where there, there isn't any effective treatment. And so they, they refer these people to hospice for this compassionate comfort care at the end of life. And I think that these doctors believe that the patient is going to get equally competent, engaged care. I don't think uh-huh. doctors really understand what's happening in that world of hospice. I don't think that most of them are aware that they will, the patients will never see a doctor again. And, and there's, um, there's almost like, a, like they're burying their head in the sand. They don't, they almost don't, don't want to know. They, they just, make these assumptions and they don't get a lot of feedback. So they just kind of keep the, the, the system just kind of keeps running. And until there's a disruption of some sort, which is kind of what we're trying to do, um, then, then nothing will change and people will still struggle. Well, that's kind of been my reaction, watching people come and go, sometimes go. And look, I think the medical establishment I think y'all are amazing. I really do. But I'm aware that there are big gaps and I'm aware that there's an awful lot of miscommunications. Yeah. There are, and, and you know, all we can do right now is kind of do it patient by patient, family by family. We're also through through the, you know, the institute that, that we, the Empowered Enemies Institute, we're, we're developing training programs and certification programs to educate more people in healthcare about the model and educate people about optimal end of life care and, and, and the gaps in, in healthcare and the options that are available. Um, and we're hoping to train more people to move into, to become doulas and to move out of the traditional healthcare space into, into these more um, kind of nuanced and focused practice models we're gonna we have a 
a plan to help create more empowered endings, medical practices in different communities and, and help doctors and doulas come together in partnership to provide support in those communities. Um, and then our foundation, uh, the Empowered Endings Foundation is, is helping to promote uh, and provide financial assistance. We have, we have bereavement groups for, for, for people. So we're just kind of all of these different prongs and arms are, are all designed to, with the same end goal in mind, which is just to continue improving end of life care for everybody. Bob, tell me about the licensing model, because I know you're working hard to get this out there. How can people who are in the medical community or they're, you know, dealing with somebody that they think would be, you know, as a, you know, a, they're in hospice or their, their mom is in hospice and they're watching all of this kind of lay out. Maybe they want to recommend to somebody that was perfect with their mom. Why don't you talk to Dr. Bob? How can they find you? So the best way is on our website empoweredendings.com um, and and there's a few different sections on there for the, the people that you're talking about healthcare providers who might who might be interested in in in, in learning about the model and how to bring this to their community there's a, a menu tab called healthcare partnerships and that that gives a bit of information and at this point it's 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 early in in this effort so we're starting to we're getting a fair amount of interest among providers in different communities. And we're looking to start um, rolling up a big couple of beta beta practices. So if people are interested, um, just on the website under the healthcare partnerships tab, it'll give us give them an opportunity to, to fill out a bit of a con- contact form so that we'll understand you know who they are and what they're looking for and what their interest is. Now, is this California-based only, or what are your plans? No, no, we're you know we're we're open to supporting people in various communities around the country. So there are certain things that are specific to California that, that we're, and it's a bit easier for us to support practices in in a sort of a geographic range. But we're open to supporting people anywhere throughout the country. It's amazing. The work you do is just truly amazing. And I'm so glad that you do it. What are some of the, and I have to ask you, we've only got a couple minutes. What are some of the current trends or developments that you're seeing and how are they impacting what you do? Are they, and of course I'm thinking California laws, you know, California is known to just have these kind of funky laws pop up out of nowhere. Yeah. Is what's well, going I'll, on? I'll tell you, you that that you're worried about right now. I think one of the, the some of the trends that are that are a bit more most concerning is the the number of hospice agencies that are that are popping up. Uh, California recently created placed a moratorium on on new hospice licenses because so many uh, companies came into the into the the market. And there's so there's four there's not for profit hospices. There's for profit hospices. There are hospices that are venture backed, you know, that are, that are um, truly just there to make a profit. Mm. And then there are some that are truly there to serve people and, and, and support. And it's hard for somebody to differentiate. Um, and, and in that, when they're in that, that time, that, that really high stress, uh, intense crunch time, it can be very difficult to, um, 
you know, to, to go interviewing multiple hospice agencies to, to find one that feels most aligned. And, and the other issue is that hospitals, when people are in the hospital, they're often being uh, pushed towards hospice, um, even if that may not be the most appropriate option for them in that moment, but it's the easiest way to get people out of the hospital. Oh. Hospices come in and they, they facilitate everything and make it very easy for the, the, the case managers, discharge planners to get people out of the hospital. Um, and often they have relationships with specific hospice agencies that may or may not be the best quality. So people often don't, don't have the opportunity to, to make really good informed decisions. And, and unfortunately then they find themselves in a really challenging situation. Now they've got all the equipment in the house and all the medications and they've had these new relationships start, but but they're not serving them well and they don't know what to do. So it's a warehousing issue, isn't it? It, it, it can be. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's a big financial game. The hospices are all competing for the same patients. They're competing for the same staff. So staffing is a major issue. So I think the biggest, the biggest concern that I'm seeing right now is in the proliferation of hospices that, that don't really have the, the, um, the patient's and family's best interests at heart. Um, I, I have a couple of hospices that I work with here in San Diego that I love. I think they're phenomenal. Um, and, and they show up in the way that we expect and um, require. Um, but there's 180 others that, <laughs> that I don't have a whole lot of, of, uh, of familiarity with or confidence in. I wouldn't say 180. But, we go back to uh, what and, we and were plus, talking about. Go start early. Yeah, yeah. Get start start your your conversations. Get and get advocates. You need to have strong advocates. I think that's another really important factor. Is you need to, whether it's us or whether it's another end of life doula or nurse, um, a care manager or you know a friend who's a nurse or a doctor, at advocates to help you navigate the healthcare space is, can be incredibly, incredibly important. Absolutely. Bob, I, I have found this a fascinating conversation and I sincerely appreciate your company today. Do you have any last minute thoughts that you'd like to share before we say goodbye? No, I think this was great. I, I really appreciate the opportunity to, um, to share our vision and what we've, what we've uh, been able to accomplish. There's a lot of work to do. There's a lot of, um, you know, I think one of the other things I'd like to share is that our, this model that, we, that we've created is a beautiful model, partly because it's, it is based on a sliding scale. So people pay a fee and if they can pay the fee, they pay the fee. If they can't pay the fee, they pay us what they can or they pay nothing. And I think this is a way that businesses, I, I don't know that every business can operate this way, um, but it's been working really well for us. And I'd love to be able to share more of that where, where there, no one's left, no one's left behind. And, and it's not like you have to go through a, 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 a difficult qualification process or um, enrollment process. I, I think there's too much bureaucracy. There's too much paperwork that keeps people that overwhelms and flusters people. 
So, Absolutely. Didn't you yeah. guys tell me that you have a foundation or you're forming a foundation? Yeah, no, we have a 501c3 okay, foundation that right. is, that, that we're, that is um, a lot of, a lot of great things are happening there and a lot of, of energy is being um, put in among, you know, uh, uh, along with the, the medical practice and the Institute. So that's all, there's also some information about that on, on our website. But I appreciate your interest, your passion, enthusiasm, your your you know your vulnerable sharing as well. I, it sounds like you've been through some some of your own personal experiences that 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 make you um, a real strong proponent for the work that we're doing. Oh, absolutely! When I was introduced to you, I said yes. There was mm -hmm. no she didn't have to talk me into meeting you. I said yes. Listen, tell people very quickly where they can find you. Your online. LinkedIn, your website, give us those names if you would. Yeah, sounds good. Well, so it's pretty easy. It's empoweredendings.com. And both on, on LinkedIn, uh, Facebook, Instagram, um, there's Empowered Endings uh, pages. And we are we welcome people to sign up for our newsletter so that they can learn more about you know what's happening. When people sign up for, uh, for the newsletter or, or go on the site, they can request we have a digital ebook that we created um, about how to empower your end of life experience, learning more about the options. So that's also available on, on the website. And we basically will talk with anybody who calls us for information. Part of our, our commitment is we wanna know what people are struggling with. We wanna know what questions they have. We can't necessarily deliver medical care to people outside of California, but we can certainly have, have brief calls with people to be able to give them resources and guidance um, when they're struggling with, with difficult circumstances. Thank you. I think what you guys are doing is absolutely amazing and very much needed. Thank you. Well, listen, everybody, as we conclude today's episode, your feedback means a lot. And if you found the show helpful, Please support us with a quick review on iTunes. Your input is very vital to my mission to inspire and empower more individuals. And don't forget to hit subscribe, leave a review, and share your partner in Success Radio with friends and colleagues. And be sure to go find Dr. Bob Uslander and Empowered Endings and connect with them. We're all going to need what he is offering sooner or later. So go find him. And be sure to... Tell everybody you love today that you love them. You never know when the end is coming. So thank you for tuning in and I will see you next week. Dr. Bob, thank you. I genuinely appreciate you being with me here today. Thank you, Denise. Get your voice heard. If you would like to launch your own far-reaching podcast, contact Denise Griffiths at yourofficeontheweb.com and go to the podcast tab.